Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. We'll just, we'll just, start, we'll just start chatting. Um, Glenn, how okay. much time do you have right now, just, to, just so we have a time frame? Oh, I don't care. I might have to stop for a pee break because I'm pretty uh, – <laughs> I got a pretty good coffee habit in the morning. I, I'm, came in I'm well hydrated. <laughs> I'm very well hydrated. I got a diuretic thing going on. And, uh, yeah, so what I do every morning is I drink, like, two cups of buttered coffee. Yeah. And like four cups of green tea. And that's other than that, I'm 100% carnivore. But um, yeah. those two little habits kind of carried through my carnivore deal. What I am going to do before you guys start recording is I'm going to put this audacity together. And um, if my stupid computer will fire up. That way you can get a high quality record because I don't think my phone's going to do the quality over Zoom. Because okay. our our internet connection tends to suck. We live in the middle of nowhere here. Sure. So um, actually, you know, the real time factor right now is working really good with you guys. Um, there's no delays or anything that I'm perceiving. So that's, that's actually a good thing, but yeah, yeah. You're coming through really clear. So we might be all right either way, but yeah, if you have a local recording, we can have that as backup just in case. Yeah. I mean, I just got audacity and I got a decent little, studio mic here that I can talk into and you'll get much better. How much time do you guys got? Oh, we usually, I mean, these things usually run between an hour 15 on average, maybe an hour and a half. Sometimes we've, we've had some long ones that have gone over two hours, but uh, we've yep. got three of these today. So I don't know that I want to do three, two hours <laughs> today. Uh, no, it's whatever you guys want to yeah, do. Yeah. You know, usually, I mean, like I said, we'll see until we run out of stuff to talk about and we start BSing too much and then we kind of, <laughs> Yep. And what's interesting, I, I listened to a few, I was hauling some cattle yesterday across Montana. And um, so I listened to a few of these from you guys. And what's interesting is it's pretty esoteric. And, um, you know, what was fascinating is you got into all this metabolic stuff that I know nothing about. You know, I'm not a medical geek, medical science geek like you guys are. And, um, but it's still really fascinating. And what was cool about it was that you were actually speaking to a level that I could kind of get. Um, so, you know, it wasn't like you're just burying me with a bunch of medical terminology bullshit. Um, it was actually really germane to what I'm thinking about metabolically. I'm 57 years old. And, um, you know, I, I just found a complete resurgence of life after I switched to this carnivore thing, which is the most ironic thing in the world. You got a rancher works full time. I've been ranching for 27 years and I just switched to carnivore very recently. It was um, a year and two weeks ago now. And I got a new lease on life. I mean, I'm just kind of blown, I'm blown away here uh, because you know, my, my thinking's better. My sleep patterns are better. 
energy levels are crazy. I'm a backcountry skier and I'm keeping up with my kids. And it used to be like, oh crap, I'm going to die out here, you know? Um, and so it's, it's pretty exciting stuff. Um, so actually I really enjoyed listening to all the metabolic stuff um, because it was actually germane to life as I'm living it right now. Yeah, I mean, we try to keep it actionable. I mean, it's nice to talk about the esoteric metabolic pathways. And when it gets too complicated, people's eyes close over and we're like, we don't even really know all this stuff, quite <laughs> honestly. And I, 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 I mean, I, the more I delve into this stuff, the bigger I go to the bigger picture stuff, because I, I realize yeah. we're going to sort it all out. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, and I hate to sound unscientific about it, but I realize that you know, it's the next year is going to be something new and the next year is going to be something new. And it's always going to be this new thing we've discovered. And, you know, we're going to run and we're going to do this supplement. And we're going to be do that supplement. And it just, I, I just think we maybe we make it unnecessarily complicated, but um, let's, uh, so we've been recording just so you know, and we're, I think this is interesting stuff because it's good back, back channel talk, but yeah. Yeah. What I want to do, I mean, and I, I honestly, I didn't know you would go on Twitch to Carnival. I just knew you were in the ranching community. So that's, that's interesting. We can talk about that. But I, um, you know, I guess one of the things that uh, is, is fascinating to me is, you know, I spoke to U.S. Cattlemen's two years ago. I went to their annual meeting up in, up in. Uh, oh, no kidding. In Montana. It was, I think it was in Montana. God, I think so. I think it was Caliarchy. Bill, it was in Billings, Montana. Yeah, it was. And literally, I'm telling these guys, you guys are literally sitting on a nutritional gold mine of health, and you don't even know it. And I'm telling these cattlemen, you need to eat more yes. beef. And there, their jaws hit the ground, like what? You know, because <laughs> even the cattlemen are brainwashed. And I'm like, you no, guys, right. you guys have the most damn nutritious food right at your doorstep. I mean, exactly. Exactly. See, you still got to get a process and stuff. But I mean, oh my gosh, if you can't get beef, no one can. And it's, it is literally nutritional gold. And I, and I think that message needs to get out there. And I mean, I was up as, I was in Nebraska um, a couple of weekends ago prevent, presenting at this keto summit. And I was out with, with some other cattle ranches, guys from certified Piedmontese. And now they run this Piedmontese breed of cattle, which yes. is big yes. muscular cattle that are actually really yes. lean and taste really tender. But I was out yes. there and, 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 you know, hanging with those guys. And then there's another guy from, from Colorado named Jeff Smith, who runs this Colorado craft company. And it's another, you know, local rancher put his beef out direct to consumer. And I said, Jeff, man, go on a carnivore diet for 90 days, dude. Cause he's, you know, he's a little bit overweight and, you know, he just kind of eating too many damn potatoes. I eat too many damn potatoes and crap. And what I'm sure he's yeah. stuff besides that. <clears throat> so I got him doing it. And I'm like, you cattle ranchers, you know, get on a carnivore diet. And then you exactly representative of the community. Like, look, I eat beef. I raise beef and look at me. I'm healthy as can be. Anyway. Exactly. So yeah. Yeah. Introduce yourself. Tell us who you are, where you're from, what you do, a little bit about your background, and then we can start getting into questions. Okay. So, hey, I'm Glenn Elzinga. I'm a uh, cattle rancher in May, Idaho. May, Idaho is kind of in the middle of absolutely nowhere. We live in a valley called the Pissimari, and it's a pretty remote valley. Um, it's uh, surrounded by mountains. We're at 5,000 feet. We're surrounded by 11,000-foot mountains. It's a valley about the size of the state of Rhode Island, and uh, <laughs> there's about 25,000 head of cattle in this valley, and there's about 300 people in this valley. There's probably more cow dogs than people here. Um, so it's kind of nowhereville. We're about four hours from Costco, and uh, we've been doing this for 27 years. 
And the reason we do it here is because um, we find that we have an opportunity to raise what we believe uh, to be exceptional nutrient density because of the pristine nature of the landscape. We run on, um, we run our cattle during the summer grazing season on 70 square miles of wild mountain country. Uh, we actually live with them out there on horseback 24 seven in remote cow camps. And uh, there's no cell service up there. There's, you can even get on a ridge at night and there's no lights. You can see 70 miles and there's absolutely nothing out there. It borders uh, very closely along the Frank Churchill River No Return Wilderness, which is the largest contiguous wilderness in the United States. And the other cool thing about the 70 square miles of pasture we run on is that uh, it is the largest certified organic land holding in what may be the world, uh, the, you know, totally connected in one block. There's other producers that have large certified organic land holdings. Uh, but, you know, they're broken pieces. This is one solid block of certified organic ground. And um, it's certified organic because it's essentially wilderness. Uh, we, like I said, we live up there. There's a few two tracks and old logging roads that go through it. But it's inhabited by intact uh, wild ecosystems that include top of the food chain predators such as wolves and bears and cougars. And we live with them up there and coexist. Um, we run about 400 head of cattle up there every summer. And one of the reasons we have really um, focused on that aspect of what we're doing is we believe the U.S. Um, rangelands and rangelands of Canada and even the world, um, you know, one third of all of the um, geographic acreage of the United States is wild rangelands. And we're up there in part of that one third. And the reason that we think it's important is because um, most grass-fed beef in America today is raised on five to 10 grass species that dominate throughout the entire United States. My wife is a PhD plant ecologist and botanist, and um, she, she came up with this number. She discovered that there's uh, over 2,200 plant species up on this uh, wild grazing range that we, we range on. And of that, uh, there's 550 species that our animals actually enjoy and eat with abandon. And what's cool about it is that um, I think we're picking up this incredible phytochemical richness that's not found in uh, most other grass-fed beef because most other grass-fed beef is on converted lands that came from cropland into pasture or maybe they've been in pasture, say on the East Coast, even to the point of being in pasture for maybe 400 years. And as a result, it's unusual that you find um, soils that are biologically intact and uh, mineral rich as they were before settlement. And the U.S. rangelands, the wild rangelands, you know, in, in the, everything from the Great Plains all the way to the California coast have this unique uh, proposition to bring to literally the table of America in terms of phytochemical richness because those soils are fairly intact. Yeah, there's places that were overgrazed to some degree, but the soils were never ripped open and exposed to the air, exposed to oxidative um, response, you know, just by surface area ex exposed to the, the, uh, the air, to the sunlight. And as a result, 
things are pretty intact up there and things are intact vegetationally as well. And as a result, we've won taste tests. Um, and I think what people are picking up on that flavor is this phytochemical diversity that our bodies are actually looking for. Um, now, Sean, you're a medical guy and Zach, you're, 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 I know you do a lot of research too. And um, <laughs> the problem is there's absolutely no money to um, support research to substantiate my claims. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's entirely anecdotal. And, uh, but, you know, I'll, I'll testify to it all day long because, you know, I buy a conventional grass-fed steak in the store and I'm very disappointed with the flavor proposition. Yeah, Glenn, uh, you know, we, we had uh, Will Harris on a while back and, oh, and great, great. Yep. It was, it's interesting because he kind of just found himself in a situation to get a little research done because he was selling to, uh, was it Epic, I think? And Epic got bought by sure. yep. uh, General Mills and General Mills wanted, wanted to validate those claims. They wanted to make sure they weren't going to get sued, I'm sure. So yep. uh, <clears throat> they went in and tested his, his uh, regenerative system and found that he was a, a net carbon sink. And I, I have to imagine there are other folks like Will out there. He's not like this lone rancher who's got this net carbon sink because he's doing things the right way and working with the land as opposed to trying to kind of manipulate it in a way that's maybe like less less useful for like plant diversity and species diversity and things like that so um it is really really cool to see that type of stuff and hopefully as maybe there's more demand for it some of these other companies that kind of have the resources to invest in things like that will want to also know like you know hey what's what's glenn's meat look like yep. versus someone else's. And um, I had a, a question around plant diversity and that sort of thing. Have you, do you notice anything like with, uh, with a kind of like a regenerative system? One thing that we've kind of learned when we've had those ranchers and farmers on the show is that no one farm or one area or region is going to be done exactly the same because you have to kind of work with the environment that, exactly. that is there. So yes. with the plant diversity in yours, is there anything you have to do like specifically since you're raising, raising, raising cattle, just like someone else who's raising cattle, maybe it's a different set of plant diversity or are cows so kind of robust that they just need like kind of natural grass and they can kind of get a variety of different things, whether it's in the Northwest like yourself or down in maybe the Southwest. No, that's a great question, Zach. And, um, and for some reason, diversity escapes people. You know, we've gotten so much into this reductionist, reductionist paradigm where, where we put cattle in these feedlots and we give them corn, we give them ground barley, we give them ground hay, uh, we give them potato waste or even candy bar waste or bakery waste. <laughs> you know, you can go down these roads, but they're all fairly monotempic um, and based on monocultures. And um, that was kind of created by this paradigm that the USDA put there in terms of the whole choice select prime grading system. And it made people want to say, oh, we can economize this. We can reduce this to the bare bones of just putting weight on cattle instead of putting, um, you know, just putting efficiency on cattle instead of effectiveness. And, you know, what it did was it took the cow out of what he or she is really, really good at. And what they're really, really good at is evaluating uh, what their nutritional needs are. Unlike us humans, we're in Western society, you know, we've gotten into bags of Doritos and armor hot dogs and whatnot. And we've really kind of 
uh, removed um, nutritional discretion out of our palates by selecting for flavor uh, because we've been fooled into um, you know these, these uh, artificial markers created by flavor companies whereas a cow has never been exposed to that so for the most part cattle still have that instinct very intact so for us um, using this adaptive plan grazing or adaptive paddock grazing system um, in first on our irrigated ground we have 450 acres of irrigated ground under pivots um, we we started to grow that plant diversity there and when we started to realize that there, our cattle did much better when we provided them choice provided them nutritional diversity plant diversity and, and an enablement to choose then our wellness went up dramatically in our cattle and our flavor went up dramatically in our beef. We test the New York strip off every steak we sell online and we've done that for 15 years. So every online beef we sell, we'll pull one New York off that and we'll test it just to make sure things are consistent. But what we've seen is an upswing in two things, uh, fat and flavor as we continue to hack this better. So we expanded that holistic or adaptive plant grazing approach to the rangelands by actually herding them up there in these tight cells. Some people call it mob grazing. It's, for us, it's a little more dispersed, but we'll have 400 head on say 10 acres, moving with people on horseback around it for the entire summer, the entire grazing season. And we're actually pre-selecting areas of great diversity the day or the week before that we're going to go to that day. We identify them on a map. We have GPS points of every place we've been on that range landscape during the summer. We know exactly where we've been and where we haven't been. And we plan based on vegetative diversity in that given year, depending on rainfall and depending on what our sun looks like and where our cattle are going to do the best to be able to create for them basically a salad bar of rich diversity for them to choose from every day. Because for us, it's total payback because when they can maximize and hack their own flavor choices and as a result of their own health choices, they're going to gain weight better. And so we've doubled our weight gain on both our irrigated ground and our rangeland ground because of this just one simple thing. And it's creating choice, creating choice and providing them the diversity to choose that so there's these 500 plant species up there you know you someday if you guys get a chance i'd love to put you on horseback up there and take you up there because you get to observe these cattle um, all day and you just see them trying all this stuff you know they're just trying stuff that's actually counterintuitive for us to eat you know it might be something like grease greasewood that's got a lot of thorns on it or they're even you know chewing some prickly pear cactus and then they're eating something that we think wow that would be highly palatable or even the so-called invisible plants are these just these little tiny forbs that are two inches high growing off the substrate of this volcanic ash that we run our cattle on in the low country they got this beautiful little flower and they're just eating this little tiny star flower on this arenaria plant that's five millimeters in width. So you got this thousand pound steer licking up these tiny flowers. And for some reason he says, Hey, I'm going to eat this today. And the next day he eats something completely different. And it's all about their palates and it's all about maximizing their choices. So as a result, our death loss and our, um, our wellness of our cattle has gone up 
death loss has dropped. Wellness of our cattle has gone up. So we're now doctoring less than 1% of our cattle per year. And we lose less than, I don't know what it is right now. It's probably less than 0.3% of our cattle up on the range every year where we used to lose many more. And I think it's because we've hacked their health or actually enabled them to make the choice to hack their own health. Yeah, Glenn, I'm going to, there's a couple of great points there. And, you know, one is, you know, like I said, we, you know, we're probably the only species being human beings that actually F with our natural diet. I mean, we, we, our wild diet, <laughs> yeah. who knows what it, what it is. I mean, we can debate about that. Yeah. We really are eating it now. And then we also, you know, we, we, we do that to the animals we domesticate as well. And whether it's our cats and dogs that we're feeding this awful kibble that makes them all fat and diabetic, or even, you know, the domestic animals that we eat ourselves, the cat, the cows, the pigs, the, the, the sheep, the, the chickens, and so on and so forth. And what I look at, and again, whether we want to apply this evolutionary model or not, it's, it's up to debate. But when I look at what humans had access to, you know, maybe 50, 100,000, you know, even a million years ago, we were eating big, big, giant animals, these megafaunal animals. Yes. We were killing mammoths and elephants, and there's a lot of fat on those animals. And so one of the concerns is particularly, as you know, is, is with this carnivorous style of a dieting approach, you've got to have enough fat in there. And so one of the concerns yes. a lot of people complain about is this grass-fed meat is too lean. There's no fat on there. I need more fat. And then before, it's like, I'm going to eat, the, I'm going to eat the grain fattened up beef because I know I'm going to get fat in there. And so yes. when you have your animals out grazing, do they instinctively, when we're looking at energy from the plants, because I know when I talk to other ranchers, they say, if I stick a cow, you know, in a field and there's grass and there's corn, they're going to walk over to corn, corn pasture and munch up all the corn because there's more energy. And are you seeing that yeah. in the plant selection, the wild plants, and do we have wild plants that have more energy and how are they getting enough fat? Because again, one of the, one of the con concerns is how do I get enough fat on a grain fat on a, on a grass finished animal to be palatable and, and meet my energy needs. And so I'm not eating Absolutely. protein. Yeah. So tell us, talk to us a little bit about that. Then I want to get more into the metrics on, on, on animal health. Cause I think that is an important. Sure. sure. No, that's a really good point you raised because um, you're right. That is a common and I believe it's a misconception about grass-fed beef. Uh, people believe grass-fed beef is lean and, um, and it's supposed to be lean. And to me, it's this huge, um, I don't know, it's a huge misconception because they're the same genetics as these cattle that are feedlot cattle. It's not like we say, oh, these are grass-fed genetics. Oh, these are feedlot genetics. So what has happened in our country with the grass, with the evolution of grass fed beef. We started this when um, virtually nobody was raising grass fed beef. I think Will was in it, Will Harris. I think Joel Salatin was in it. I remember calling Joel on the phone probably in 1992 and saying, Hey, I've heard about you. And of course there's no podcast. Then. <laughs> and you know, he gave me the time of day, which was wonderful. And Will and I have since gotten to know each other at conferences and whatnot. And um, those guys, were pioneers because there's virtually nobody raising grass-fed beef in the 90s. We'd go to farmers markets and say, wait, aren't all cattle supposed to be grass-fed? And um, well, you know what, that's a loaded question because, you know, I would smile and laugh at them and say, yeah, indeed, they are supposed to be grass-fed because, you know, if you go back prehistorically, you know, ancestral um, lineage and cattle is all grass-based, you know. So anyway, you bring up this fat notion and the irony is that um, much of the beef that's marketed today as grass fed is leaner 
And it's simply because um, those cattle weren't kept a long enough period to get fat marbling. They, they weren't taken to physiological maturity. When an animal reaches physiological maturity, they start putting on weight. It's like a teenage kid. You see these teenage kids with very um, kind of not necessarily morbidly obese, but they're, you know, they're partially obese. Um, parents are overweight. Um, and, you know, so they're producing these kids that are teenagers, both boys and young women. And, uh, you know, they, they look great. They look great going in through their, um, you know, adolescent years into high school. And uh, suddenly they hit uh, the freshman 40, right? They go to college and get the freshman 40 or freshman 20 or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. And they start putting on weight. And it's because they've reached physiological maturity. Yeah, sure, the food's not great in college, but they've reached physiological maturity. And as a result, the thing they're going to convert that energy to becomes fat. Cattle are the exact same way. And Sean, with your excellent point regarding plant selection, you're absolutely right. They're going to go to the corn. I don't know if you guys, I, I'm kind of a geek this way, but I get off my horse a lot and I go follow these cattle around on foot and say, I want to know why you're eating this. What's in this that I can detect with my palate that would say why you're eating this. So like that little arenaria flower, I picked that up when I was watching these steers just lick this up on, you know, at elevation 6,000 feet on these ranges. And it was almost invisible. It was just this tiny little, you know, five centimeter tall plant. And so I picked up those little flowers, those little beautiful white flowers, five petal jobbers, and put them in my mouth. And you know what? They're like taking pure drops of maple syrup. Hmm. So, you know, and there's this mineral rich diversity of all these chemicals in there, which of course I can't identify. But I'm like, holy cow. And the reason I parallel it to maple syrup is because when you eat maple syrup, um, boy, I kind of like some by the, by the way, right now on this carnivore diet, I do miss maple syrup, <laughs> but, um, anyway, maple syrup, I used to uh, live in the Northeast when I was going to forestry school and, um, maple syrup, the reason it's so attractive to us, I think is because unlike Mrs. Butterworth or even honey and absolutely sugar or corn syrup, there's this, um, mineral diversity in there that gives this full spectrum flavor to the sweetness that's very attractive to us and it's very attractive to our human palate and so as a result you know I kind of parallel that into the cattle and so they're picking I see them continuously picking stuff that has sugar um, like they'll eat uh, instead of eating the seed heads of say a native species we have blue bunch wheatgrass they'll reach down into the nodes and eat those. So guess what? When I pull apart those nodes, I get that same kind of mineral rich sweetness. And so they totally hack that. So that's where they're picking up their energy. On the other hand, I see them picking up stuff that's just highly mineralized. So when we enter the low country at 4,000 feet, our range goes from 4,000 to almost 10,000 feet. And we basically follow the snow line through the summer with our crews moving up 10 camps all the way up through the topography to get to those high elevations later in the summer where the grass is still fresh. But when we're in low elevation country, what's interesting is our mineral consumption completely quits. We put out Redmond 100% mined salt from um, ancient seas mined in Utah. That's the only mineral we give them. And it's just salt. It's the same salt that we use at the kitchen table, Redmond salt. And so at home, they, they go through Redmond salt pretty 
pretty aggressively because it's got this huge mineral trace um, uh, quantity associated with it that you know precipitated out into the ancient seas. And so what we find is we don't have to put salt out when they're in the low elevation country because they're getting it by just hacking all these desert plants. Some of the plants they eat are very savory and salty and have these like intense tannins in them that we think, oh my gosh, you know, that's almost uh, too tough to take. It's almost like in, in eating, you know, Thai food or something like that for us. It's like, wow, that's shocking, you know. But these cattle are actually hacking that and balancing it with these sweet high energy plants. And as a result, going back to your, uh, you know, your quest for fat, especially, you know, in the carnivore realm, Sean, um, we're seeing them start to grade choice USDA choice on the range. We'll actually select them by hand, uh, you know, on horseback in a remote, remote field location. We'll trail like 15 head, um, 10 miles down to a remote little corral we have there. We'll load them up and we evaluate them just by tailhead deposition, fat deposition, the scooching fat deposition on heifers. And uh, we'll actually haul them right off the slaughter directly off the range. And we have a lot of those cattle grade USDA choice. So there's that fat and that fat they're picking up is just because they have the option up there with all those diverse plants on the range. Glenn, one thing I wanted to ask you since you're kind of in the unique spot being up in Idaho, which I'm always told is the most underrated state in the United States, by the way, <laughs> which means I definitely have to get up there and visit. So, Yeah, um, well, don't tell anybody that. Yeah, Zach. yeah I know. We're it, supposed to keep that know, a secret. What we say, it's, it's all potatoes. It's just all potatoes. You know, and it's just this we'll be in our listeners then. <laughs> so go ahead. Yeah, because it's interesting. You guys get a real winter up in Idaho. And I think we when do. people think of like regenerative agriculture or any type of agriculture that involves, you know, like 100% grass fed and they're not, you know, sending these cows indoors for large portions of the year. What is it like trying to work the seasons up in Idaho and how does kind of the feeding change in winter versus the summer and that sort of stuff? Yeah, that's a great question. So that took us a while to hack. Like I said, we've been at this for 27 years and we kind of tried everything to figure it out because um, we serve stores. We serve grocery stores with our beef. 80% of our beef, uh, we we process about 400 head a year and 80% of those go directly on the internet to people like you guys, you know, we'll just ship beef in boxes. Um, and we've been doing that for 15 years. We shipped, I don't know, 30,000, 40,000 boxes now of beef that's flash frozen in our freezer and vacuum packed, um, individual servings, portion sizes. And so it, that's 80% of our deal, but 20% of it goes directly to brick and mortars. And um, so, as a result, we had to figure out a way to keep this beef, keep the fresh flow going. You know, it, since it wasn't all frozen, we had to figure out a way, hey, how can we finish these cattle all year? How can, can we get them to that um, high select, mid-choice, even prime grading system all the way through the growing, uh, growing season and then through the dormant season as well? Because we live, you know, at 5,200 feet elevation and, um, well, we get snow, you know, like I'm looking out the window right now, we probably have a foot of snow on the ground and it gets down into the single digits most nights. And um, 
during the daytime, it might get up into 20 degree range or something like that. So, you know, a lot of people say, well, that's an enigma when you have grass fed cattle. But what we realize is that we can gain weight almost as efficiently on high quality hay that we raise. Again, it's, you know, certified organic uh, high quality hay that has a ton of diversity in it. And unlike the paradigm that most uh, cattlemen are in, and especially most dairy farmers, uh, we don't really value, put a lot of value in high protein hays like alfalfa. Alfalfa is a great hay and it's a great crop, but it's a monoculture. And if we just feed alfalfa, we find that our wellness goes down on our cattle. And also it can be even risky to feed because they can overeat on it. They can eat it too fast. They can get bloat reflex. And as a result, they could even die on high quality alfalfa hay. So for us, it wasn't a fit to have this monoculture going into them. And as we let the cows hack their own nutrition, we realized that if we can provide them similar diversity in forage in a hay bale to what we can during the summer, well, they're going to still be able to produce. They're still going to be able to be very productive in terms of their weight gain and in, even in terms of their fat deposition, which is critical for us because, uh, you know, I'm assuming you guys like ribeyes. I love ribeyes for some reason. Most guys really, really like ribeyes. And for me, a ribeye without marbling is not a ribeye. It's uh, just another New York strip, another top sirloin steak, you know. So um, so I really like these marbled ribeyes and I want to produce them. And for us to be able to, you know, just fall off um, that kind of paradigm in the winter time, just because it was winter, wasn't acceptable to us. So we started really trying to hack how to grow very, very nutritious hay that we could put out there. But just recently, we came upon this amazing discovery. And it started because um, 10 years ago, we took soil tests all across the ranch and we averaged 2.5 five organic matter all across our 450 acre place here and we just took soil tests again at the end of this growing season in august and uh, you know we had no idea what was going on and um i i, I gotta admit i wasn't really into soil i was like hey our earthworms seem to be improving when we dig a hole in the ground wow we're seeing a lot of earthworms you know and we were seeing all these manifestations and the other manifestation we're seeing was that our average daily gain, which we actually measure because we weigh cattle all the time to see how our grass is doing, had doubled. It had gone from 1.8 pounds a day on our pastures here on the place to almost three pounds a day, which was, you know, um, competing with a feedlot type gain. There's feedlots who don't even get three pounds a day. We were getting it on pasture grass. And the other thing we found is that we could double the carrying capacity of our cattle on our home ranch here on irrigated ground. We could go from 200 head to 500 head. And the same things were happening on our range. We're doubling our average daily gain and we're doubling our capacity. And I, I was scratching my head saying, why is this happening? And I thought it had to be because of what was happening underground. So I started, after taking a soil test, we got back amazing results. We're averaging 6.5 in organic matter across the entire ranch now, uh, from up from 2.5. Um, so we've just multiplied our organic matter component in our soils dramatically. And it's really through um, two things that 
you know, there's about eight factors I consider to be big, but the main two are um, creating diversity, maintaining diversity, and um, actually there's three, adaptive plant grazing, and the other part is just feeding this hay in the winter strategically to basically feed soil biota and provide cover uh, to the ground because animals always waste hay when you feed it down in the ground. We never put these animals inside. They're outside 24 seven. There's not even a place to put them. I mean, there's 450 head out there grazing right now, Zach, and they never need inside. You sometimes will put them um, in some brush or something like that to get them out of the wind, but um, they're pretty hardy and they have that fat cover because they built it on the outside that insulates them kind of like whale blubber or seal blubber does and it protects them in the winter. So they have a lot of thermal efficiency in the winter because they're, they're maintaining fat cover all the way through the year. And as a result, you know, at the same time, these cattle and the hay feeding we're doing are just doing amazing things to our soil profile. And I had no idea this was happening. So I even went and um, started calculating carbon. Um, so I called all these like PhD guys, um, and said, hey, I wanna know how to calculate soil carbon. And at first they wouldn't tell me, they were like, why do you wanna calculate soil carbon? And I said, because I wanna be able to speak the language of soil carbon from a regenerative standpoint, from a climate change standpoint. I wanna see how we're doing. I need to know how we're doing and whether we're heading down the right track. So it's actually not very complicated. You know, It's just managing Excel, which I'm pretty good at, and uh, putting in the right metrics and going out doing the right, um, right tests, right kinds of soil tests. Like there's a bulk density test that you need to measure this uh, soil carbon and determine what the carbon dioxide equivalents are in your soil. And uh, what I found out was um, one, we were, you know, we were really tying up a lot of carbon dioxide in the soil with this increased organic matter. And the other cool thing was that um, just running through all our numbers using conversions that are readily available online in uh, scientific publications um, through, you know, calculating how much fuel we go through, calculating enteric methane that's released by cattle. And we use very, very conservative numbers there. The, the highest ones for methane releases that, you know, typically come from dairy farms and confinement feedlots, even though people say grass feds less. But what we found was that um, we were um, carbon negative and climate positive uh, probably, uh, you know, on a pound per pound basis and CO2 equivalents of, um, you know, somewhere between three to 10 pounds of uh, atmospheric carbon was put in the ground for every pound of beef we produce off the ranch. And, you know, those weren't like numbers that I want to, you know, post necessarily publicly. They were for us. They were for us as producers because, you know, I, I didn't really feel good about what I was doing until I knew wh where I stood because, you know, we're really an animal powered operation. We sold our equipment many years ago. Uh, we ride horseback all summer. Um, we, we feed with draft horses a lot of times whenever we can. Um, we, we go through a very minimal amount of diesel fuel. Actually, in the calculations, what was interesting was the enteric methane was tenfold all the other emissions combined, you know, all the other uh, carbon emissions, methane emissions combined, just enteric methane released by cattle just kind of blew me away when I used those highest numbers. I was like, holy smokes, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to make it, but we still did. Um, 
And, uh, and it was because we just try to run a very carbon neutral operation, but it turned out to be um, carbon negative and climate positive. And that's, that's pretty exciting to us. And it was just, it just kind of gave, you know, my crew, us, my family, the jumpstart we needed to say, yeah, we're doing the right thing here. We're doing the right thing by the earth. We're doing the right thing by our soil. We're doing the right thing by our cattle and we're doing the right thing even in a planetary sense. Glenn, I, I there's again there's a, so many good points in there, and I, and the big picture points I want to bring you know, bring out is, you know, you go from 200 head of cattle to 500 head of cattle on the same acreage basically, so you've more than doubled. That's that's what is that 250 percent or something like that. So, yes. so we've got this, you know, thought that you know we can't have any more cattle. I mean, you know, we can't feed the world any <laughs> need, and yeah. we're going to run out of land. And again, you are in this pristine, isolated valley in in, in Idaho, yes. and some people say, well, this is not something I can do in South Dakota in the winter because. And, and obviously it's cold in Idaho and, and at 6,000 feet, it's really yes. cold. Yes. Uh, and so I just wonder, <laughs> you know, we have, you know, you know, if we count the cattle in the U S we've got somewhere around 95 million head of cattle. Yes. You know, is it unthinkable to suggest that we could expand our cattle herd to 200 million and, and, and be, you know, match what we have in Brazil and feed them a variety of plant foods and increase the productivity and have fat, fatty rich meat is that something that's scalable and doable i mean i I mean we keep getting ranchers we have will harris we have you we have uh, you know trent Hendricks. we have joel saladin all these guys are showing it can be done it can be done it can be done in different parts of the country in different parts yes i don't you know yeah we i mean i'm sure there's people out throughout the world that are looking into this stuff i know we've got bobby gill from the savory institute on we've had alan savory on and we hearing yes, 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 we, we've got success stories, success stories, kind of like what I'm doing with the carnivore diet, success story, success story, success story. Dogma says you can't do that. You can't be successful. So is this scalable? I mean, this is the, this is the million dollar question in my mind. Is this scalable to the general cattle industry or is it to some degree scalable? And, and, and what is going to bring you there? And you talk about I'm an I'm a equipment free guy. I'm out on horseback, which is probably more enjoyable. And I would probably suggest being on a good diet makes that a little more fun for you because you, you know you, you got more energy to do that because it's going to be probably yeah. a little more manpower yeah. intensive. Yeah, it, so, it kind of kills you. <laughs> this episode of Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by BioOptimizer's P3OM. P3OM is a probiotic that stands out. Reason being is unlike most probiotics, it doesn't just pass through your system. P3OM strain doubles every 20 minutes and maintains in the human digestive system. This allows it to eliminate pathogens and waste before it is safely eliminated from your system. The folks at BioOptimizers are confident you will be satisfied, so they offer a 365-day money-back guarantee on all of their products. Go to www.p3om.com forward slash human. That's p3om.com forward slash human and enter promo code human10 for 10% off your next order. For links, check the show notes. Now, back to the show. Talk to the talk to the bigger picture because, I mean, it's great what you're doing. It's wonderful what you're doing. Yeah. You've got 330 million people in the U.S. And, you know, you can feed, you can feed. 30,000 of them maybe, or I don't know what you can feed, but I mean, we got to feed a lot of people. So let, let's, let's expand the, expand the conversation and, and where are we headed with this stuff? Okay. So there's several points that I would, um, 
bring up with regard to that. And um, I guess the first thing, Sean, I would go to is what, what did it look like prehistorically in our country? Um, so estimates, current estimates are, you know, you're right. Um, domestic cattle output is around 95 million head a year. There's 95 million head in a year. The output actually is around 30 million head of slaughter cattle per year. So that includes cows and bulls and, um, you know, non-terminal uh, assets, their production assets for most of those. So there's only about 30 million head that we're killing. 27% of that is going going out of the country you know it's going to other places so we could talk globally or we could talk to the united states for this purpose let's just talk to the united states because our meat consumption is kind of um it's pretty it's pretty dramatically high yet so anyway you got that 95 million 30 million processed killed slaughtered sold in uh the retail stream and that's pretty much all feedlot beef right so that means 97 to 98% of that is uh, feedlot beef. It's not grass-fed. We're a very, very small minority, us grass-fed guys, the Will Harris's, the Joel Salatins, the me, um, you know, people like me. So, but anyway, so the thing that we always go back to <laughs> whenever, whenever we make a ranching decision is we don't go to our county agents anymore. We don't go to Beef Magazine. Uh, we go to um, this thing that's been looming around us for millions of years uh, with my ancestors and everybody. And um, it's still there. It's still there to be able to determine how to uh, have a decision flow. And it's just to look at what nature's doing and look at what nature did. And, um, you know, you take the Great Plains, for instance, and it's well documented that there was huge amounts of bison just in the Great Plains. There's woodland bison that went to the East Coast. There's woodland and mountain bison that went all the way to the West Coast. But let's just talk about the Great Plains for a second. So anyway, estimates are pretty varied, but, you know, the number that kind of, you know, hangs out in averages is 50 to 90 million head of bison just in the Great Plains. That's a lot of biomass. Um, Add to that the uh, whitetail, the mule deer, the pronghorn, um, you know, just significant amounts of uh, biomass. And then look at all the plant biomass that's uh, not necessarily being grazed every year. So highly productive landscape just in what is today about uh, 12 of our 50 states. And, you know, when I look at those numbers, I right away think, well, wait a second, you know, what's wrong with our paradigm? Uh, where we applied uh, monoculture to almost all of those 12 states categorically. And now we grow corn and soybeans there. And guess what? That corn and soybeans isn't grown uh, so much for human consumption. It's grown for animal consumption. Um, so we're feeding roughly 60% of that directly to animals. And the irony is that about 40% of those crops are going into ethanol production. So we're putting, we're fueling our cars with it, you know, even despite, you know, petroleum being uh, pretty ubiquitous, uh, you know, we're, we're fracking like crazy. And it's like, what are we even doing this ethanol thing for? It's a complete waste of land resources. And, um, you know, it can arguably be said that um, those Great Plains are some of the richest soil on earth. Um, potentially rich. Unfortunately, we've uh, done extractive agriculture on it for quite some time. And we've really deteriorated the wellness of those soils. But you take a guy like Gabe Brown, he's in North Dakota. He's in a very um, rough environment, kind of like we are. You know, he's got northern latitudes. 
Um, we got high elevation, and yet he has turned his place into this uh, this wonderful um, stacked enterprise. And when we look at nature, you know, the prime example, there's no waste in nature. Um, if you die in nature, if you and I are running out and being our paleo caveman counterparts, uh, when we die in nature, something eats us. Uh, everything that dies in nature is eaten by somebody else. It's, it's a closed system and there's no waste. Uh, when, but when we look at nature, you know, that perfect example, that elegant example of complete, truly multiple use, um, we see stacked enterprises all the time functioning very well. I mean, we typically think of rainforest and we think of stack, the stacking is actually vertical. You know, it's all the way up into the tree canopy, all the way down the soil biota. But you know, when you take a prairie system, it's stacked enterprises as well, because you know, have, you have these top of the food chain predators, wolves, grizzly bears, um, even badgers um, kind of carnivoring their way through uh, the plethora of livestock diversity that's out there. And then you have these herbivores out there and the place is literally teeming with them. So for us to say, oh, we can't grow the food, when in reality, I think if we kind of uh, followed a natural mimic, just did some biomimicry of just the Great Plains, <laughs> I think we're gonna be able to provide enough food and fiber for us um, as a nation, just in that very small area if we regenerated our soils. You know, for us, um, it wasn't about soil carbon. Uh, when we regenerated those soils. I talked to you about what the important take-homes were of that soil. Soil carbon was a side benefit. We weren't even thinking about it. We were trying to increase productivity. So we were able to double our productivity. And I think it's not over. We, we, only, <laughs> we only measured the top 15 centimeters of our soil. So I don't even know what's happening down low as those roots progress, as our perennial plants' roots progress deeper and deeper. Um, you know, we're obviously sequestering more carbon, but we're also building soil like no tomorrow. So, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, the soil carbon thing is, and the soil organic matter thing is really an S-curve. Um, you know, it slowly builds and you end up in this, you know, kind of exponential form part of the curve. And then as you top of the sigmoid, you know, you're flattening out. But I'm not sure that's true because, you know, the thing that we can do with soil is actually we can start building soil. We can actually pile soil on top of itself and we can build soil down into parent material below. So when we apply those kind of principles of regenerative grazing to, you know, these, these hugely, hugely um, mineral opportune landscapes that occur on the less, on the silts and on the deep loams, of that um, of that midwestern country, well, of course we can you know generate incredible amounts of, of food and fiber off those if we follow those laws of nature and stack enterprises. And, Glenn, you know the. Uh, go ahead. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Did you have something? No, go ahead. You're doing good. Yep. <laughs> I was just going to say I think it's really interesting listening to you describe this stuff, and I'm just thinking back to some of the other ranchers we've had on too because it seems to me like it's this weird situation where it's so impossibly complicated, but at the same time, it's very, very simple because it's like, it's so complicated that it makes it silly to think that we could step in here and start pulling threads and not expect the whole thing to kind of unravel. If we start manipulating things away from its natural state, 
But then yes. if we do what you said and just kind of follow the laws of nature's in a, in a relatively simple manner by just letting things do what they're supposed to do, it's, it tends to just kind of like pay back almost exponentially in your case. It does. Yeah, no, it was exponential. And the thing that I found, you know, because we started out quite conventional, we were trying to do this grass fed thing. And of course we read beef magazine. And of course we listened to our County agents and uh, we, we paid attention to what the universities were saying. And, you know, at, at the get go, there was some value there, you know, don't get me wrong. There was some value in, in cow calf production systems that we learned that was, that was pretty, pretty great to learn about. But the thing that um, we kept falling into was this reductionist pet. So of course we started applying chemicals, you know, it had this, you know, the, the return on your investment applying nitrogen to the soil is dramatic. So <laughs> in, in the early nineties, Oh, you know, we, we discovered that we're kind of like meth heads because we started applying nitrogen or near one. And it's like, Holy cow, look at the expression here. You know, it was uh, our pastures and our hay ground were on steroids and we're like, Oh my gosh, that's the best decision we ever made to plant <laughs> nitrogen. And then we found the following year after soil testing, it's like crap. Yeah, for some reason, we might have to apply a little more nitrogen this year. And then by the time year three and four came along, um, we we're, were paying the pusher pretty hard because, um, you know, we, we were way increasing the amount of nitrogen for the same yields. And the problem was that uh, nature was paying attention to us the whole time. And I wasn't listening to that whispering in my ear, that awkward whispering. Um, was that uh, payback time was coming. And, you know, it took Carol and I getting uh, kind of toxified by some of the chemicals we were using. I was using organophosphate ear tags one day, I remember. And uh, they, they were supposed to do fly control. Now we do no fly control. We're certified organic. And we have no fly problems. Our fly counts up on range um, are virtually nil. We, we don't have flies on our cattle. And, um, and it's because they're moving all the time. We break the life cycle of flies because we're, we're following the natural rhythm of the way bison ran on the same landscape, you know, a thousand years ago. They did the same thing we're doing. Uh, but predators actually move the bison around in these small herds of two to 400 head. So that's how we got the mimic up on those rangelands. But anyway, we broke that fly life cycle. But before that, we were trying management intensive grazing. We we're trying adaptive um, paddock grazing. And we're trying to figure it out. We're trying to hack this thing, but we're still not breaking life cycles fully. And we're using these organic phosphate chemical ear tags. And we'd go to bed with these tremendous headaches and we couldn't sleep at night because of them. And then I'd get these chemical burns from nitrates and stuff, applying nitrate fertilizers in the summertime or when it was too hot and I was sweating. And it's like, wait a second here. You know, this is actually affecting our own wellness. And when that thing, that thing, came along um it kind of jerked us into reality of thinking what the blank are we doing here and then we started looking into organic because carol is a plant ecologist right i was a forest ecologist by training uh before i started ranching we're both kind of straight up on uh, the ecological concepts of the wildlands all around us but we weren't we weren't walking <laughs> in those same ecological principles in our uh, production paradigm you know so we applied those same ecological principles we started to pay attention to nature that's where stuff like the bison came from um, 
And we started actually researching what things looked like on our landscapes before we showed up. And of course, chemicals weren't part of it. And so guess what? You know, we, we shifted into organic production and there's a three year waiting period before you can be certified. And those three years were pretty hellacious because our production um, and profitability just crashed and burned. You know, uh, nature, nature is fairly unforgiving as a partner because if you go against what those natural paradigms are in those natural ecosystems and you actually um, you know, try to shortcut them, your, their payback time can be a killer. <laughs> so, so we lost money. We lost major amounts of money and we didn't see increases in yields until, um, you know, we hit the bottom of the steep part of the exponential S curve. And then it's like, holy cow, something's happening. Something's changing. And, and I mean, obviously, thankfully, you've come through that and have been successful. And now you're, you're, you're reaping the benefits of what you working more with nature i mean is there any downsides to doing what you're doing now i mean is there any time where you're saying this is really difficult or is it i mean is it all you know flowers and roses and rainbows <laughs> yeah it's uh rainbows and unicorns we're livestock producers Sean, so <laughs> keep in mind <laughs> so anyway um yeah that's a really good question um so Unfortunately, the downside can be economic sometimes because, uh, you know, we have to sell beef. And um, so in this grass-fed industry, there's a ton of greenwashing going on. Um, you know, it's, it's, whenever, it's whenever a term comes along, um, there's always uh, corporate America and uh, VC, venture capital America, is always quick to pay attention to, you know, what the latest market trends are and they'll jump on these bandwagons. And so for us, uh, the biggest frustration in probably our business is the export market of grass fed beef, uh, the export market, not us exporting to them that actually the import market, I guess it's uh, beef coming in from um, outside our borders uh, that has these attributes that has these attributes of grass fed and has the attributes organic. And I'm not saying that these people are necessarily cheating and that the purveyors as such are necessarily being cheats. However, uh, the price climate is completely different in those, um, you know, outside nations. It might be Australia, uh, a lot is produced in Tasmania, it might be Paraguay, Uruguay. And, you know, I, I don't discount the value of them as producers. I have friends in Australia and New Zealand I have friends in South America who produce excellent food, excellent beef. But, um, you know, it's about economics and it's about playing fields um, and being level. And I, I just can't compete in those playing fields. Um, you know, if you guys go to our website, you're going to say, oh, my gosh, uh, Glenn and Carol Elzinga are, um, you know, they're, 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 they're gouging us with these prices. And, um, you know, but, and you might, you know, look at that when you say ribeyes are, you know, $60 a pound or whatever. And that's true. That's a lot of money, but, um, it's because we can't keep them in stock. We sell out of them every week and we had to put price controls in to have an even offering going out. So that's the only reason ribeyes are expensive because our ribeyes sell very, very briskly. People like them. Um, they'll wait for, 
uh, certain stakes to to come online. Like we have this one stake called the Ribeye Nation, we call it. Um, and it's it's just a perfect ribeye. I hand select them all. Uh, we select them according to confirmation, according to marbling, um, according to thickness, according to exact stake characteristics. Anything that doesn't make that great doesn't become a ribeye nation. It's a very expensive stake, but we sell out of them every time we post them. Uh, people are waiting for them. They have a Google tickler that says, oh, the nations are in stock. But, you know, that's not the heart of our business. The heart of our business is selling beef trim. You know, it's selling, um, you know, 55% of the animal, 60% of the animal. That's not those high, higher value stakes. Uh, maybe it's as much as 75% of the animal. And that is the field we're competing on. Um, that, that's been very, very challenging to us. I, I'd say that's probably our number one challenge is, um, is trying to stay, you know, within the paradigm of locals, trying to, um, you know, we're not going to give up any of our attributes. We'd rather quit because we have these, you know, solid values in um, organic and uh, regenerative, um, you know, just maintaining the integrity of what we do um, without any greenwash. And, you know, as a result, it's, uh, you know, we're just competing on an unfair playing field. That's probably the biggest challenge in, in any grass-fed producer. I was talking to Will Harris at a meeting um, several months ago in Albuquerque, and, uh, you know, he, he, he's quite a bit larger and us, uh, we have like 25 employees during the course of the summer. A lot of them are college kids uh, riding horseback and uh, burning their butts off in the saddle out there. <laughs> but, um, you know, he's got 165 full-time employees, so he's quite a bit bigger than we are. But, you know, we both agreed that, you know, it's a difficult business to be in because of the competitive sphere, you know, overseas beef for him is a, a very difficult proposition indeed. So, uh, but, you know, I, I'm optimistic because, you know, unlike Will, um, I feel like we're just sitting on a potential gold mine with the phytochemical richness of these intact wild range landscapes. It's, it's America's unfair advantage. 30% of our country are these open grazing lands and um, they're, they're largely unused. I mean, people consider the ranges to be this waste ground um, to dump cattle on or maybe to strip mine or maybe to do oil and gas exploration or maybe to extract timber off of but for us when we run these cattle up there um, you know in a regenerative way in, in a way that actually builds those soils up there uh, through this uh, adaptive holistic planned grazing um, on horseback you know it changes everything it changes not only the landscape we have beavers coming back we coexist now fully with wolves uh, they're top of the food chain predators that we live with up there um, our fish habitat has dramatically improved even sage grouse a uh, almost listed species is improving on our rangelands because we stopped using riparian areas our the areas of the biggest potential habitat um, so as a result you know we're, we're doing that but we're also providing this nutrient-dense food from this wild and intact landscape like wild salmon and it's this unfair advantage that is completely untapped in in the u.s today and i, I believe that you know if people would kind of capture that vision of the value of the beautiful value of these wild lands and to do that regeneratively we could not only change the health of this landscape we could not only sequester carbon but we could also change the health of our populace as well and, you know, 
provide an answer to that question you brought up. Hey, can we raise enough beef? I mean, these are largely unused lands because the way most people run on rangelands, they don't gain weight. Um, you know, like we do, they, they kind of steady state weight, their cows lose weight and their calves gain weight and they are busy the entire fall trying to put weight back on their cows after coming off the range. On the other hand, you know, we're out there actually, you know, kind of micromanaging these cattle in a large herd and it's changed everything. You've probably listened to the Alan Savory Ted talk, you know, that we're, we're seeing the fruit of that kind of activity right now. You know, cattle can transform uh, brittle and arid landscapes on a grand scale. And there's so many of them and there's so many of them that are slipping into desertification. So granted our markets are tough, but we're standing on unfair advantage here. And um, it's a beautiful, beautiful place to be. Hey Glenn, I want to talk about this, un, this fairness and stuff like that, because um, you know, the average person going to the store is not thinking about regenerating the soil and the, the, the yes. I mean, yeah. that's just not in, in some of the, the average consumer's conscience. There it is. How do I feed myself the cheapest way I possibly can? And, and, and you, you know, you get that and you understand that. And then I want to ask you, because, you know, we talk about the meat industry, you know, the meat, the evil meat industry, and we've got these four, you know, it's, it's Tyson, it's, yeah. Marvel, it's, it's uh, JBS and now Marfrig. Yeah. Uh, and these guys control 90% of the beef production in the yes. country and arguably much of the world at this point. And what we're seeing is these beef companies are, are now becoming protein companies. They're, they're getting into alternative meats and they're going to be growing meat yes. in the lab and they're going to invest in that. They're going to do what's, what's best for their stockholders, not, well, not what's best for you and I. Uh, health-wise, and we have this thing called the NCBA, which is the National Cabinet's Beef Association, which the beef checkoff money goes to, and they're supposed to be representing us, and I, as an outsider, and again, I'm a, I'm a physician, I, I'm not a rancher, I talk to a lot of people, but my outside observer uh, sort of uh, uh, sort of view that I see, and I've talked to other ranchers about is, I mean, I don't know that you guys are being representative, and they're not just representing these big in industries and maybe because there's more money and more wealth there and, and these guys are being overrepresented and you guys are being underrepresented by your supposed organizations that are out there i thought would be, be for looking out for you do you feel that that is going on do you feel <laughs> that there's some sort of beef checkoff money why am i paying a buck every time a cattle moves and what am i getting from it i mean i can't remember the last time that the meat industry actually promoted beef for the dart all i can remember the beef it's what's for dinner stuff so from the 90s yes. But since yes. they've been largely silent, and I, I don't know. I mean, I'm just con I'm confused by this. Of course, there's a cool law. You know, I'm sure you're aware that that got repealed, and now you can mix in Mexican beef, and you know, yes. you can mix it in, call a product of USA. I'm sure that doesn't make anyone any of the U.S. producers happy. But yes, talk a little about the the interest at the national level versus what can I do as a consumer to support you guys? And, and, and are you going to get any political representation? Is there going to be some legislation that's going to say, hey, man? You know, Glenn, Glenn's out there throwing throwing soil, uh, carbon back in the soil. Let's give this guy some sort of help to get to, to incentivize to do this. Where, where, where are we going to be 10 years from now? What do you see? Are you, are you optimistic, pessimistic? What's going on with that? You know, I guess I'm pessimistic, Sean. And, uh, you know, so Rachel Carson writes this book, uh, Since Silent Spring, you know, when I don't know when that was. It's probably uh, late 60s, early 70s. Um, I remember when that book came out and, uh, you know what? Legislators weren't seen reading that 
um, <laughs> in their in their uh, you know hallowed halls of uh, the Capitol building. Um, they weren't saying, "Oh my gosh, have you seen what this woman has written about?" But yet, we know that Rachel's book kind of transformed um, you know our pesticide uh, chemical addiction landscape. And, you know, cause the passage of things like the National Environmental Policy Act and stuff like that. So you got to ask, well, what was the mechanism to do that if the legislators weren't reading her book and actually probably um, didn't really uh, support the reading of her book? So anyway, what happened? So what happened was that the consumers... Uh, the, the, the us, you know, the, the ground pounders, the people who work for a living um, actually read the book and said, oh my gosh, this is going on. You know, um, we, we have got to change things. So, I mean, the same thing happened with uh, Upton Sinclair's book, you know, in the early 1900s, uh, The Jungle, uh, Exposition of the Meatpacking Industry. And a uh, great book, but it, um, you know, eventually, precipitated the passage of the uh, Packers and Stockyards Act, and which changed the face of massive scale beef production that we're actually seeing a resurgence of today, mostly in terms of food safety and in worker conditions. Um, so I think it's just a matter of time, Sean. You know, I'm not, I guess I'm short-term pessimistic, pessimistic long-term optimistic that, um, you know, I think eventually consumers are going to get a hold of this. Um, but you know what? Consumers don't really move forward um, carrying their uh, banners, carrying their placards down to court or uh, capital steps until it affects them in some way. And usually it's a pain point that, um, that happens. And usually it's health. So until they see affecting, uh, maybe it could be the wellness of their pocketbook, but I doubt that's going to happen. But until they see it affecting your health and um, seeing the, the, the converse of this, which is uh, sustainably raised meats and proteins, um, you know, I think, I think they're not going to make the decision. They're not going to make the right call. But I think it's a matter of time. Um, you know, there's almost no epidemiological stuff that shows that grass-fed meat is is way better for you than um, feedlot, corn-fed beef. Um, and as a result, you know, there's nobody saying, oh my gosh, we have got to get um, off this kind of corn-fed monoculture diet stuff because, well, it's screwing us up because the phytochemical richness isn't there. As a result, I have these autoimmune diseases and whatnot. I believe those things are probably true, but there's no empirical data that shows that on a consistent basis in peer-reviewed documentation. And it's because there's no money out there to do those kind of studies. I mean, nobody's going to fund those things, Sean. It's not like Glenn's going to write a check from Alder Spring Ranch and say, I'm going to put down $2 million for this, this study, and we're going to make it a long-term dietary study. You know, you guys... You know, I heard even you guys talking about it on a podcast. It's like, wow, there's no data <laughs> you know, over and over again. So, you know, but somehow um, that's got to happen. And I think it's going to happen just from the ground up um, in terms of people saying, oh, my gosh, I have kind of dropped the carbs out and I've actually selected these kinds of meats. 
And as a result, I am feeling better. And they are the people who are compromised somehow. You know, they're health compromised. I was health compromised before I got into this carnivore thing. I had brain fog at night. This is, you know, two years ago. Brain fog at night, loss of energy during the day. I had muscle fatigue. I had joint pain. Um, I had all these symptoms going on. And, you know, I, I just felt like crap. I had malaise all the time. I was taking naps during the day. I was sleeping 10 hours a night if I could. But I didn't rarely had time to do that. Uh, trying to play catch up all the time. Um, I was just burning out and I was like, what is going on? And I actually met this MD up in Montana who uh, interviewed my wife and I, and he said, I want you to try this. I want you to try this carnivore thing. I think he'd been on your podcast, Sean, actually. And that's where he got some of his ideas, him and Jordan Peterson, Michaela. And um, so guess what? You know, I started to feel great. And I think that's where it's going to come from, Sean. It's going to come slowly. It's drip by drip, uh, person by person, contacting. I'll bump into somebody and they say, oh, my gosh, you lost weight. You look great. You got all this energy. What's wrong with you? And I tell them. And, um, you know, there's not many takers, Sean. And I'm sure you're experienced that as well. There's not many takers. They're not people who fall over themselves and say, oh, my gosh, I'm going to become a carnivore. Uh, but, you know, there's this silent response. Um, where people start thinking about it and they start, you know, perceiving their own health. They start paying attention to it and they start trying and dinking around with this stuff. And as a result, I think that's going to be the groundswell. That's going to be the change. It's not necessarily going to be legislative. It's not going to be regulatory. I, I think those things are on, they're, they're, they're not possible, but what is going to happen is there, it's just going to be food choice. People are going to say, wait, I'm sick of the crap. I'm sick of this, you know, monotypic stuff that's actually hurting the planet. That's actually got all these problems. You know, a lot of people call and say, or they'll email and say, why should I buy this beef? You know, it's, it's, it's like 30% more expensive than I can buy at Albertsons. Um, why should I buy yours? And, you know, it's, there's, there's different attributes. Sure, it's flavor. Sure, I can say it's health. Um, you know, there's no empirical studies that uh, indicate that. But, um, on the other hand, what about regenerating? What about, uh, you know, what about Gulf of Mexico deposition of dead zones um, by our conventional agricultural methods? What about soybean agriculture and, um, and pea agriculture that um, are, you know, in a lot of uh, protein substitutes, plant-based protein substitutes now, and how they um, deal with carbon and how they're actually uh, generating more carbon than they're sequestering. What about those kind of uh, consciousness decisions as those things become known? Um, I think people are going to start voting with their food choices. I think that's their only hope, Sean. You know, I mean, we know that uh, these four packers you cite, <laughs> there's corruption case after corruption case against especially like JBS. And um, so we're going to come to the table with them and hold their feet to the fire by what? By, by throwing a million dollar fines at them, which are nothing, you know, just absolutely nothing. I saw JBS got some kind of $450,000 fine. It's almost laughable. You know, um, that's nothing to them. You know, they're the hugest packer in the world. Um, they're, they're multinational and based out of Brazil. Uh, these guys have been uh, tried for corruption racketeering charges, the main uh, principles of that business and um and then they go free and they begin to operate again and we're going to actually come to the table with them and establish some kind of new paradigm for um you know trying to be uh, globally secure in terms of you know ecological value in terms of carbon and in terms of food wellness impossible you know it's an oxymoron to, to say that that's going to happen 
So what's got to happen is people are going to start have to voting with their own, their own gut, literally. I mean, their own gut, literally, uh, their own health, their own wellness, and say, crap, I want to do something different. I'm going to do the right thing for my body. You know, the food budget, Sean, you know, I'm sure you're aware of this. Um, it's, it's 6% right now <laughs> of, of our Western culture, you know, uh, Canada, North America, Western Europe. Uh, we're spending 6% of our money on food. And I, I did some research to see what it cost in 1950 before uh, USDA came along with this crazy, um, you know, both the food pyramid and also the whole uh, select choice prime grading system. Um, and back then it was 45, 45% of somebody's income was spent on food. Now we're spending six. We personally spend, um, Carol runs QuickBooks, my wife, and, uh, <laughs> we spend 35. Um, you know, it's just because it's, a, it's such a priority. I mean, food makes you feel good. Essentially food makes you function good. Food is basically what uh, makes the world go round. You know, I'm sure somebody like Zach can attest to that more than anybody, you know, he's running these hundred mile races and if he doesn't eat right, he's basically screwed. Um, you know, but what about just the day to day performance of being a human, uh, you know, just being able to function at a highly cognitive level with people in conversation, you know, this, what we're doing right now, you know, is, is the gift for me to be able to just BS with you guys and have a great visit. And it's, it's, it's food that's powering all of it. And I think that's the decision point. Yeah, Glenn, I mean, I think the, 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 cheap, the luxury of cheap food definitely comes at a, at a cost, and it's costing us from an environmental standpoint, and it's costing us from a, certainly an individual health standpoint. We see that clearly. I mean, I do think there's, and I am a little bit hopeful. I mean, I, I see that, you know, you know, this whispering of eating meat or even you know, fully carnivorous or eating a lot of meat is becoming more and more accepted. I mean, people are, yes. and I am, I guess, some people can blame me as one of the leaders, but I am being very vocal about it. I'm encouraging other people to be vocal about it. I mean, yes. I see these whisperings about if people aren't going to eat, cut back on meat consumption, we're going to tax and we're going to tax you and force you to eat our plant-based meat. <laughs> yes. And that, that, so I think we need to, as a collectively, just say, first of all, meat is a health food. You know, establish that. And I think we're doing it. And, I, and yes. just so you know, I mean, there's, I mean, David Ludwig out of Harvard and, and another researcher, Dr. Uh, I always have Blake in her last name, so I apologize. But sh they're doing a study on carnivore. I mean, we're going to get probably three to five to 10,000 people that are going to submit their data, and that's going to be in the literature. And then we're awesome. Awesome. We're going to see this red meat just be challenged, and I think it needs to be, and whether it's true or not. And I mean, obviously, I'm biased because I experience it, and so are you. And, and, you know, Zach eats a lot of meat, and he's doing well on that. So, I mean, We've got, you know, first of all, let's establish beef in general is a health food. And then we start yes. to say, what is the best way to do this? How can we make it sustainable, both environmentally and from a caloric standpoint, so we can feed everybody? And I think those are yes. the things that have to happen both simultaneously in parallel and series, however you do it. But the bottom line is, you know, we need to establish, you know, particularly beef as a health food and then go into the details. And I think that's where we're at right now. And right now we're, 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 we're fighting 50 years of dogma that demonized eating red meat. Oh my gosh, <laughs> eat red yes. meat immediately. Your heart's going to seize it. Your colon's going to fall off and colorectal cancer. Yeah. Yeah. Complete, utter garbage based on complete, utter nonsense, pseudoscience, yeah. which is nutritional epidemiology. So that's my rant. Glenn, um, this has been a great conversation. I, you know, I think this is something maybe we can, we can do a, do a round two, 
somewhere down the road, you know, as things go by. And I, you know, I'm, I'm really excited. I, 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 I mean, you know, your carnivore story is like hundreds and hundreds and thousands. In fact, we've had 10,000 people already sign up for this World Carnivore Month we had, including some pretty influential people, including guys like Joe Rogan, who's doing it. He's you know, awesome. Three weeks in, it says he's loving it. I, you know, he basically good told, deal. Good oh, man. I feel great. This is the best I've felt in years. Alina said that. Yeah. So we're going to get some continued pushback, and I think it's you know it's up to all of us, myself, yourself, Zach, the other people, to continue to get out there and get this message out there. And and you know if we don't, because we know what's going to happen if we don't. You know, it's it's like you know it's like what you want to die on your knees or standing up. Either way, exactly. I'd rather stand up, yeah. right? So we're yeah. going to. Excellent. And, and I thank for what you're doing and demonstrating that it can be done. And hopefully for the ranchers that are listening, because, you know, we got a lot of old ranchers out there. Most of the ranchers are, you know, they're, they're older. They're 63 is the average age. Maybe exactly. they're not, not going to do it. Maybe some of them will. I mean, maybe it's just too much. You know, they don't have time for the three years of, you know, until the nitrogen fertilizer wears off and they got to deal with that. But these younger guys are getting into it and hopefully more people will be inspired. Like whenever time I listen to you guys like you, I know Zach and I were listening to Joel Sout and we're like, damn, I want to, just be a rancher. You know, you know, it's kind of like, it's very inspiring. And you think about the bucolic setting and the, and the, and the, and the, the, uh, the butterflies and the birds and the cows and wild animals. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. you know, it's like, this is what we should be experiencing. And then, you know, if we've got plenty of animals, you know, around, then we, eat, we eat the ones we need to eat. And that's, you know, yes. I know there's, there's this pushback that we shouldn't eat animals. And I think that's nonsense, but Anyway, thank you. Glenn, tell us a little bit about your ranch, how people can find out about you, where they can order your product from, because that's, that, that's important. Sure. Uh, we sure. want to support you guys. And so let us know how we can, we can support you in that way. Zach, do you have any, before it does that, Zach, anything, any last comments? No, just yeah. uh, th thanks for coming on, Glenn. Uh, like Sean said, we'd love to have you back on, and uh, maybe we could even have your wife hop on too and talk about some of her. Oh, that'd uh, be awesome. Yeah, <laughs> some of her PhD <laughs> research and stuff. But uh, yeah, yeah, please, please share where folks can find you, where their social media website and that sort of stuff. Okay. Yeah. So we're just uh, Instagram Alder Spring underscore Ranch. Uh, have a fairly. It's not, uh, it's very active Instagram engagement. I think we're somewhere around 4,500 followers or something, but they're very active people. Um, so a lot of wonderful uh, photography on that uh, posted by my daughters. I do a uh, IGTV video series there as well. It's just about what we're doing, production, production protocol, stuff we find out, um, exciting things that are happening on the ranch. Um, and of course they got Instagram stories kind of running daily, you know, daily feed going through there, just about what life looks like out here. And, uh, it kind of brings people into, you know, just the culture of what we do because it's a very different environment, um, from what, you know, a lot of people have experienced. So, um, so that's, that's nice. Um, another place to go is just alderspring.com and, uh, we got an extensive website that has a lot of information about grass-fed beef, about organic, what that means, uh, how we raise it in particular. And then, of course, at alderspring.com, there's a link uh, to the store. And uh, that's going to be, right now, it's a storefront that's fairly functional. We're switching it into Shopify probably within a month here. And so that'll actually make it a little more efficient, a little more streamlined, a little more pay-friendly to um, any kind of... Uh, you know, pay, pay gateway. Um, so, you know, on that, we sell all kinds of stuff. We, um, we purvey our own beef. Of course we purvey our own pork. Um, 
We have lamb in season. Uh, right now, it's it's pretty much all used up. We have pastured poultry that we raise. Um, so, you know, it's a stacked enterprise like I was talking about in, uh, in nature. We're trying to emulate that with these different species as well. So those, those things are all there. We have jerky, we have sticks. Uh, uh, we also have uh, leather that's produced by my son-in-law. He produces wallets and stuff like that out of, out of leather and makes some beautiful, beautiful items there. So that's at alderspring.com, A-L-D-E-R-S-P-R-I-N-G.com. And uh, we'd love to have you visit us virtually or even ultimately have you visit us on the ground. And that goes to you two guys, man, if you're ever up in the country, give me a call because I'd love to just have you out on the ranch. I'd love to bring you up on the range to cow camp and, you know, just uh, see some beautiful um, kind of intact wild country. We're running these cattle, uh, trying to pick up that wild and uh, nutrient dense grass for protein. That sounds awesome. I just followed you on Instagram, by the way. And so what I like to do, I've got another guy's Derek, uh, TDF uh, on his farm. And, and, you know, he puts up some really good content about talking about the day-to-day activity. Yeah, I, I'm happy to, to repost that stuff. And, and if you guys have got some of these nice videos where it shows, this is what we're doing. This is why we do it. Oh, cool. Yeah, that'd things, be great. I'll, I'll, I'll do that periodically because I think it's, it's so important to get this message out. I'm trying to use my social media voice as it gets bigger and bigger to, 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 to get this message out. It needs to get awesome. out to a wider audience. So awesome. Good deal. Um, okay. I got to go, man, Jack, I'll see you back at okay. two o'clock. Right, uh, it's a pleasure and look forward to interacting with you more, man. Take care. Yeah, this has been great. Thanks again, Sean. Take care. Hey folks, human performance outliers podcast is growing and due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.